Okay, it's going to be Luke chapter 9. Last week, we saw two women that Jesus was able to give their lives back to and the spiritual implications that account has for us today. Today, we're going to see the 12 disciples get pretty much a hands-on experience by being sent out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. Up to this point, Jesus has trained the 12 disciples for two plus years, and now he's sending them out to put into practice what they've learned, a hands-on experience. What amazes me is the everyday lessons we can learn from Jesus in the word of God. On a side note, this week my police department sent me to FTO school, which is Field Training Officer School. Uh, I pretty much trained some of the younger officers informally, and now they're having me do it more of a formal basis. So they send you to a school to learn the best way to train the newer officers. A little bit of the background, uh, I walk into the classroom and I see a man who I haven't seen in 15 years. He was a lieutenant in the Franklin Township Police Department that I used to work for when I first became a police officer. He's now retired and has his, he's a professor, he's got his doctorate. So we caught up on a little bit of old times. But as we're going through the material, I'm blowing, I'm pretty much being blown away by the parallels of the FTO program, which took decades to perfect, right? And the fact that this Sunday we're in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus is an FTO. He's training the disciples. Coincidence? I don't think so. So I'm being sent to FTO school as a pastor. And, and just seeing these incredible parallels with Jesus and the disciples. And, of course, I shared it with the professor, and he gave me permission to use the material. So I'm going to use some of that material that I learned from the class. Um, so, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus took real-life incidences, and he helped people understand spiritual truths from real-life incidences. Now, I, I like to use whatever I can, you know, uh, during my travels, because it's free material. It's less i got to study for so Jesus sends the 12 out, and he sends them out in pairs. Mark's, six, Mark's Gospel 6-7 records. It appears without him, obviously. He could only be confined to one body at the time when he came down and incarnated as a man. So he sent out his disciples in six teams of two. Uh, and let's see what decades of research says about his methodology. Of course, we know that Jesus was perfect in every way, but uh, just bear with me as I go through some of this classroom material. The first thing I learned when I went to this school was that uh, in best circumstances in a classroom with a good teacher, with nice temperature control, with a certain amount of time, the best circumstance, you only retain 17% of what you hear. Isn't that something? So, And not everybody retains the same 17%. But I'm going to go into page 2 and 3 of this manual and see what it says. It says that adult students come from varied backgrounds with different life experiences. Learning requires a relatively informal atmosphere where the student can feel free to participate, hands-on. Instructor interaction with the student creates an atmosphere of cooperative problem solving. We're going to definitely see that when they feed the 5,000. Self-directed learning has proven to be very effective with adult students. Brookfield says that self-directed learning is the process in which individuals take the initiative in designing learning experiences, diagnosing needs, locating resources, and evaluating learning. Adults are interested in gaining knowledge that they can use immediately. Therefore, they learn by relating new tasks to earlier activities, the new tasks that they're going to do, the disciples going through the town, from the earlier activities that they learned being with Jesus. 
through the use of personal experiences, hence him sending them out by themselves, and by using autonomy and direction, just teams of two throughout the villages. It is now a widely accepted principle of education that learning through experience is the most natural and most effective learning method. So let's see how Jesus does here. Let's see how he puts that into practice. Verse 1 in chapter 9. It says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So he gives them divine power, thereby giving them a more active role than they had before. He kind of pushes the disciples out of the nest, if you will, to see them fly on their own. Because, see, when he's crucified and he he rises again the third day, he's on the earth for 40-day ministry, and then he ascends into heaven, he pretty much leaves them to continue on the work of the church. I'm going to go to John 14:12, just one verse. It says this. Jesus says to them, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now, when he says greater, the Greek word indicates not that the disciples are better than Jesus. We know that's not possible. But through scope and effect. As Christianity grows and true believers are adhering to the word of God, because there's more of them, they can do um, you know, nu- numerically greater works than Jesus could do. Okay, so going back to, it says the most important thing that they had, actually, the disciples, was God's word and the key to salvation. But the visual miracles, the casting out of demons, was an authentication of what they were, were preaching. And the amazing thing is that God entrusts us with the dissemination of the most precious gift in the universe, which is salvation. And God expects us to use that gift of salvation after we've been trained by it. Verse 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So these are the marching orders for the disciples. He's giving them their instructions before he sends them out. Staff represented protection from wild beasts or or, um, robbers. A bag and money. A lot of the itinerant preachers at the time would go from village to village with a bag and they would preach or philosophize or whatever they were going to do and they would get paid for it. Now, Jesus doesn't want that example to be set because the gospel is free. He doesn't want them to take money for what they're doing. It's a free gift, salvation. Uh, Bread, daily sustenance. And we know that the Lord is our daily bread. And tunics, protection from the weather. The picture here is God is guiding and God is providing. Not to be successful out of your own strength, but to trust God. That's the message here for the disciples. And in verse 4, this is just a picture of Middle Eastern hospitality. And you still see it today. I know people from being a police officer, you get to meet people from everywhere. And it's a very diverse community. So I get to meet a lot of people from the Middle East, and they're very hospitable people. They don't have such a fast-paced society as we do, and they're very welcoming. When somebody comes into their you know, area, it's an honor for them to be able to take you in, to put you up, to feed you. So it was no different back then. These people are glad to put you up, and it would be an insult if the disciples would go from home to home 
looking for better provisions. Those in ministry, and the, the key here and the, um, the example here is those in ministry are not to be celebrities. We're not to offend. The message is not about us in ministry. It's about God's salvation. All we are in ministry is we're a conduit line. That's the way we should think about ourselves in ministry. We're a conduit line for the message of salvation to get to the people. That's all we are. And if the focus is on us, then the message gets lost in the translation. It's like a clog in that line. Okay, verse 5, we see another custom. The very observant Jews, when they would pass through Gentile territory, when they were done passing through, they would take off their sandals and clap them together and get even the dust off of their sandals. Uh, Those people were not even worthy for the dust and the dirt from their village to be retained on the sandals. What Jesus is doing is he's reforming this custom. It's not about, there's no longer a separation between Jew and Gentile, male and female, as Paul says, but the separation is between those who desire God's salvation and those who reject it. If they reject the message, take off your sandals, clap them together, you know, and and move on from there. It's like throwing pearls before swine. You've heard that. And the example, example Jesus makes is that pigs wallow in the mud. You know, mud is plentiful. It's not worth anything, but they love the mud. If you threw pearls at a pig, they would just trample those pearls. They don't care about the pearls. They don't realize the pricelessness of it. They like the mud. Uh, and the pearls are a picture of salvation. And swine is a picture of people who just continually uh, reject, 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 and they treat it as a common thing, the message of salvation. Now, for the benefit of the CD, the benefit of people who hear this on the Internet, and I don't know how, this would, I don't know how to say this without offending people, but if you're listening to this and you're swine, wake up. <laughs> the, the message of salvation is they're pearls. Stop wallowing that mud and pay attention to the pearls that are being put before you. Uh, I know a lot of people who have heard and heard and heard and they just keep rejecting it or putting off or putting off. Well, eventually, God will solidify you in that position like he did to Pharaoh. Verse 6. It says, So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is a picture of obedience. God calls us. God builds us up. And then God expects a return on his investment. You know, he expects us to do something with what he's put into us. He gives us spiritual gifts. Go and do it. He expects us to use it. Some of you know that God is calling you to do something and you're just kind of ignoring him. You're, you just keep walking away from that. I'm just going to say, stop being a Jonah and running because you won't have rest like Jonah didn't until you finally answer his call. Jonah eventually laid down his will and said, okay, Lord, I will follow you. Verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, we spoke of the Herods before. The Herods were kings. They were um, kind of go-betweens between the Jewish people and the Roman government. They were tetrarchs, the Bible says. And if you break that word apart, it just means they were rulers of a fourth. So basically the land of Israel and the immediate areas surrounding it were cut up into quarters, and Herod the Great ruled, but then when he died, his sons took over and ruled those quadrants. Okay? Um, biblical history, 
and secular history both paint the Herods in a bad light. The only apparent decent one was Herod Agrippa II. And if you remember the book of Acts, chapter 26, this was the guy that gave Paul the audience. And he pretty much was going to release Paul from his uh, impending uh, charges against him from the state. But he couldn't. He had no power to do that because Paul had appeal, appeared, appealed to uh, Caesar. So this guy seemed to be a decent guy, but the rest of them were pretty bad. The one we're speaking about here is Herod Antipas. He's the guy who beheaded John the Baptist. He's also the guy that hears Jesus's, uh, when, when uh, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod's district. You know, Jesus was like the hot potato. Nobody wanted to deal with him. And uh, Pilate says, okay, this stuff happened under Herod's district. So he sends uh, Jesus to Herod's district so Herod could deal with him. And then Herod wants to, an audience. He wants him to perform. He wants to hear him. Uh, but, you know, he, he eventually goes before Herod. Now, this Herod was eventually exiled in 39 AD by the emperor Caligula. Interestingly enough, on charges made against Herod by his own nephew, Herod Agrippa I. I actually like to, you know, you'll notice that I throw into the message a lot of history because there's biblical history and true secular history always supports the Bible, whether it's uh, historical, we know the Romans existed, the Greeks and so on and so forth, whether it's language, whether it's customs, no matter what it is, I just like to use extra biblical history to help, you know, because people say, well, you're just narrow-minded, you just read the Bible. Well, the Bible is a history book, okay? It is geography, it was written in several different languages, different time periods, but at the same time, we can use everything and bring it all together and show that these things actually did happen. A few things about the insertion of Herod Antipas here. Jesus didn't have time for him. In chapter 23 of Luke's gospel, again, Herod finally gets to see Jesus, but Jesus doesn't perform. He doesn't do any tricks for him, doesn't do anything. And Herod ends up sending Jesus back to Pilate. But the lesson here is that true men of God who are busy doing God's will will not become celebrities and try to nuzzle up and become really important with important people with the world. And it's funny because sometimes you see that, unfortunately, in Christianity. It's, you would think that these people spend all of their time, act, they think they're celebrities. But what we're supposed to be doing is getting the word of God to the people. That's our job, plain and simple. Uh, the second thing is that Herod did the same thing with John the Baptist. One of the versions records that at times Herod actually liked to listen to John. He liked to listen to his preaching. But obviously it didn't have much of an effect because he had John beheaded because of a foolish oath that he made. And now Herod is looking to do the same thing. I'd like to hear this Jesus. He does the same thing. But I'm going to tell you now that the stricter judgment is for Herod, for continuing to listen to the truth and continuing to reject it. He let the word tickle his ears, but that's about as far as it went. And three, Herod was supposed to be, in a sense, a spiritual leader of the Jews. As a matter of fact, when Herod the Great, the first Herod, the one who killed all the little babies, right, when he found out that the Messiah was born, he had them slaughtered because he didn't want any competition because the Herods were self-proclaimed messiahs in a sense or kings of the Jews and they didn't want any competition from Jesus or anybody close. So, you know, these people are a picture of a false shepherd. They have a title that they're religious leaders, but they're false shepherds. Zechariah 11 records that. How many times do you see somebody who's a spiritual leader and knows nothing of the Bible? I love when they interview, <laughs> whether it's CNN or Fox, they, there's a, a world, an event that happens, and they interview the so-called representative of Christianity. 
And I'm like, come on, that's scripture, John 14, 6. And they're just sitting there like dolts, you know, in front of the camera. And you're like, what are they doing? It's like almost like they pick these people purposely because they just know that they're going to get the same response. And the Christians are all yelling at their television, quoting scripture, and the guy's not getting it, right? So he has a title, but he knows nothing of the Bible. Don't, affo- don't follow and don't be impressed by the appearance of somebody's apparel. Do they know the word of God? See, uh, Isaiah 56 says that, that these guys were, uh, speak about the false shepherds, some of them as dumb dogs. Dumb dogs. They don't know anything. They don't know anything about God's word, but they like the title. So the appearance doesn't impress God and it shouldn't impress us either. As you could tell, I kind of dressed myself today because Heather's at the women's retreat, so I don't have much of an appearance. And the fourth thing is, Herod and many others speculated about what's going on. Actually, she bought me this shirt, so, you know, it's, it's nice. Otherwise, I would be wearing something else. <laughs> My wife is great. What would I do without her? I don't know. Anyway, so Herod thinks that maybe John rose from the dead. Some of the other peoples are saying that it could have been one of the old prophets. Everybody has an idea of who Jesus is. They're not figuring it out. They all have a hodgepodge of scripture and tradition, but they can't make sense of it. And you see that today. Everyone knows a little bit of something about the Bible and scripture, but they can't put it together. Okay, it reminds me of the old days. Before I was a Christian and I went to a lot of parties, right? You'd go to the party, you'd greet people. Right away you go for the beer and you start drinking the beers. After about three or four beers, people start talking about politics, right? If some of you have been there, you're laughing. And then you start talking, just stupid, like you, you could do a better job than the governor or the president. You know, you just keep talking. And then after a few more beers, you start talking about religion. That's always the best one. And you know what the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. You know what else the Bible says? And you sound like a bunch of idiots, you know. You think back on your life and you're like, boy, was I stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. And you're all just kind of talking like you, you know something about the Bible. But it's the same position here. These people, it's a hodgepodge. They've heard something here. They read something here. But they don't know anything. They have no knowledge. Moving on, verse 10. It says, And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Okay, here I want to take out the manual again and read page 5. This is called the, the Andro, Andragogical Process of Adult Learning by Dr. Mark Rossman. It says this, Set an, an appropriate climate for learning. Galilee, that was an appropriate cl- climate. Two, establish a structure for mutual planning when appropriate. It's pretty much the marching orders we just read. They were laid out in the beginning of chapter 9. Three, diagnose the needs for learning. What's the needs for them to learn? To save the lost, to save people from hell. That's a good need. Four, Translate the needs into objectives. Well, what are the, what's the objective to, to fulfill that need? Preaching the gospel. Uh, five, develop a plan for accomplishing the objectives. Send them out two by two by themselves, and when they're done, have them come back and debrief them. And then the last thing is um, carry out the educational plan. And the last thing here is evaluate. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, they, they come back. He's debriefing them. They're getting de-stressed. And he's evaluating them. As a matter of fact, Mark 6, 30 through 31, two verses. It says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, 
Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So he's taking care of them. Bethsaida is the setting. It's basically a shore town on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And again, de-stress and evaluate. Jesus critiques them and gives guidance for the next mission. Also, two key words here, the word private and the word deserted. Sometimes, you know, we all need a a break. We, We need to rest. The Bible tells us that the Sabbath was for the children of Israel. But it's a good example for us. God did work in six days and on the seventh day he rested. We all need that time to rest. We in ministry too can be subject to that fatigue. Um, the responsibilities of a senior pastor are a lot. <laughs> Manifold. Um, counseling, taking phone calls, directly being involved with the budgets, being involved with the business end of the church, whether I like it or not, um, preparing the message, staff issues, and the list goes on. So there's a lot of responsibilities for a senior pastor that people don't realize. And that's why I talked about in the beginning, Heather and I just kind of being with each each other and, you know, sending our son to somebody else's house so it could just be me and my wife. It's it's going to be a good thing. But the flip side of that is verse 11. Verse 11 says this, But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. Here's the balance in ministry, yes. And it is, life is a balance. You know, life is a big juggling act. You have to decide, you know, there's work, there's family, there's prayer time, there's reading the Bible, there's fellowship, and it's a big juggling act. And, you know, we need to seek the Lord to understand, well, we should know our priorities, but understand how that all works. So, uh, the balance. We need that alone time, but at the same time, ministry means loving people and being there for them. If we can't love people, then ministry is not the job for us. If you don't love people, don't, don't bother trying to get into ministry because you won't fit in. Uh, we need to be in God's business, not in the God business. There's a difference there. And unfortunately, unfortunately, sometimes there's a crossover. We need to be in God's business, but we don't need to be in the God business. That's when it's lost. It all goes downhill from there. What do people think of you? Do they truly think that you love them? or that you're just putting your time in and doing what you think God wants you to do. It has to come from the heart. Second Corinthians, Paul says, 9, 6 through 7, he talks about being a cheerful giver and not giving out of compulsion, but freely from the heart. And that doesn't just mean money. It means your time with people, your love for, you, for people. If, if you're doing it out of compulsion, then you're not doing it right. Don't do it. Okay, now we come to a situation that I'm sure was common to a lot of the circumstances which surrounded Jesus. The multitudes follow Jesus wherever he goes because they can't get enough of him. Incidentally, the word of God, and I like it, this is the word I use, is magnetic to our souls. I think about Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's a regenerative action. It's, you know, when you hear the word of God, even before I was saved, I heard the word of God, and no matter what state I was in, it, it attracted me. And it is like a magnet because... It's either going to draw you close or you're going to be so hard-hearted that you're going to repel. Like when you take two magnets of positive charge and put them together, they just keep moving apart. The word of God is magnetic. So they just, people just keep following him. They've been with him most of the day and they're worn out. Now they need to be ministered physically as well as spiritually. They're hungry. Verse 12. 
It says, when the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Okay, this is, more, more, this is another training session. This is an apparent problem with no solution. The 12 just got, now check this out, the 12 just got done trusting God to cure diseases, to cast out demons, to preach the word, but they can't figure out how to feed 5,000 people. It's, they, it's just not registering to them. So Jesus is presented with the problem, right? He gives the 12 an opportunity to solve it, and then he shows them the best way to handle it. Now, thinking about myself, it's amazing, that, again, the principles you can learn from the Bible. I think, in my other job, that I'm a good field training officer, and not because of me, because I've learned from the best. I've just been able to absorb principles from the scripture. The funny thing is, if you've been a Christian for a while, and you just behave normally as you do the way when you read the scripture and you pray, and you let the word of God affect you and, and apply it to your life, people will ask you for advice, and you'll do things, and they'll go, wow, that was great. You have so much wisdom. You're thinking, well, you know, you don't think about it. But, but think about it. Over the years, you've learned the principles from the scripture. The professor who was teaching the class, I said to him, I was talking about principles from the Bible, and I said, you know, he talked about how when you deal with a rookie, you don't want to be negative and break their spirit and, and make them feel bad about themselves. You, you want to keep their excitement level up. So he goes, you've got to be real be careful about talking negative. So I took him aside and I said, you know, there's a principle in Revelation where Jesus speaks to the seven churches, and what he does is he does have negative stuff to say, but he always starts out building them up. I know your good works. I know your patience. I know your love. And he builds them up. And he says, but this I have against you. When you initially start by building somebody up, the bad news isn't so tough to take. This good principle comes right out of the scripture. I think there was a um, famous salesman, Zig Ziglar. You guys have heard of him? He uses a lot of biblical uh, principles, and he's very successful. So you can't go wrong with the Bible. But I've done this before. I've talked to my rookie, and I present the problem already knowing the answer. And what I do is I allow him or her to try to solve the problem. And then what they do is when they talk to me about solving the problem, I let them, you know, find the solution. And then I help to fine tune it and guide them in the right direction. But this is all biblical principles. In verse 14, it says there were about 5,000 men. Now, in those days, men would eat with men and women and children would eat together. So if there's 5,000 men, there's a good possibility there was probably about eight to 10,000 people there at the time. Um, you know, again, they had Jesus, but they were, they were faced with seemingly insurmountable odds, and they probably thought, nah, but you know what? I know that we're disciples, but this problem is just too big. Look at all those people. Imagine being faced, small group, you know, 12, 13 of you, and you're faced with eight, ten thousand 10,000 people. There's a lot of people in front of you, and Jesus says, well, you feed them. Okay, a crumb here, a, a fin here, you know. <laughs> okay, well, what, start somewhere, right? You don't know how to do it. You ever feel like that? It's like, I know you're there, Jesus, but 
I know you're there, Jesus, but I can't pay my bills. I know you're there, Jesus, but my kid went astray and they're, you know, they, they're doing all kinds of crazy things and I fear for them. I know you're there, Jesus, but this medical report looks really, really bad for me right now. It's just too overwhelming, Lord. Well, on a personal note, I, got a, I finally got my MRI report and I'm doing great. Monday and Tuesday, I'm in field training officer school. I'm getting free material for my service. I'm riding high. Wednesday morning, I go to get my MRI report, and I look at it, I'm like, three herniated discs, one bulge, and an arthritic condition in my neck, and I got problems with my back, too. So the, my first thought was, this can't be mine. This, they must have switched mine with the 95-year-old guy. You know? <laughs> Can I have my report, please? <laughs> so then I'm, I'm looking at it, and I'm realizing all the pain that I've had, and I'm like, well, this is definitely mine. Now I know why I got that pain. Then my second response, it's funny how you go through the phases. The second response is, <laughs> This can't be happening to me. I'm a pastor. Don't I get special treatment? Okay, that didn't work. <laughs> then my third response was bummed. I was like, oh, this is me. This is terrible. It's not going to get better. I'm going to need surgery. Uh, it's overwhelming, Lord. But the fourth response was the right response. And the cool thing is God always gets my head level before next Sunday. <laughs> he always gets me to pick it up before Sunday service. So I know that, okay, maybe a few days I could wallow, but by Sunday i got to be on my game again. <laughs> but the fourth response is, just as he fed all these people, right, and preserved them from hunger, these eight to 10,000 people, surely he has an answer to my decrepit spine. So that was my, my last response. So not only did he feed the multitude to satiety, but there were also 12 basketfuls of leftover. And you could take the numbers and say it almost is like each basketful was for each disciple. It's like it was their provision. Uh, provisions for the faithful. God always provides for the faithful ones. The ones who raise their hand, like in Isaiah 6, that says, send me, Lord, I'll go for you. He provides for you. If you're faithful to him, there will always be an overflow in your life. John 10:10. 10, 10. I have come that they may have life and that they may have life more abundantly. And as much as I think about some of the problems that I might have physically, I've got to tell you, the Lord brings to my attention the way things are going on in the world. You know, I, I'm really blessed. As a police officer, I drive around and I see how people treat each other, and I just see, I just see a lot of bad stuff. And it's not like, I'm not trying to be pharisaical, like, oh, I'm so glad, Lord, you made me better than that poor slob. It's in a way that when I see the sorrow and the suffering of life, it's a wake-up call to me. I've got a good life. The Lord has really, really blessed me, even with my light affliction. So that's something we have to look at. I think the ride-along programs are good, especially for teens who think they have it so bad at home. Come, come in the police car and see what the rest of the world lives like. It's not, it's not a pretty picture. But in the next port, portion of Scripture, his Galilean ministry is coming to a close. And soon he's heading to, to, to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. So it's important for the disciples to really understand who Jesus is and because the, you know, they're going to continue the church. So going to verse 18, it says, And it happened, as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. 
So what does the world think of Jesus and what do you think of Jesus? Everyone on the planet has to weigh in on Jesus. They have no choice because he was the most influential person that ever lived in history. Uh, I actually was telling the guys in the back about this thing I saw on the History Channel, Washington the Warrior, stuff you don't learn in school. Washington was an incredible man, dynamic figure when his troops were wanting to break ranks because the British were, you know, overwhelming. Washington would draw out his sword and with his, he was a six foot three man, which was uncommon in those days. And he would ride away from his line towards the British and they were all firing musket balls and he did this in several battles and he never got hit. But it would inspire the troops to bet, wow, look, Washington is ahead of us. So they would all re reform and go back after the British. The guy was a very dynamic figure, but Washington doesn't hold a candle to Jesus Christ. So everybody has to weigh in on Jesus Christ, whether they like it or not. And, you know, to give you a small sample showing you that even every religion has to weigh in on Jesus. And I'll give you some of the religions and what they believe about him. And what the, from then on, what is the biblical representation of who Jesus is? Starting with Islam. Six centuries after Jesus, six centuries after canonization of the scriptures, codification, the Old Testament, everything is set. Islam comes on the scene, right? What do they believe in him? Well, they believe that Jesus was a revered prophet. Actually, as a matter of fact, I have two Qurans at home and Jesus is in the Quran uh, multiple times. But he's not the son of God, they don't believe. And furthermore, God is not a father. God cannot be a father to us. God is a capricious God. He's a whimsical God. And you don't know if he likes you or not until the end. And this is, again, this is what they believe. But the problem there is if Jesus claimed divinity, then you can't call him a good prophet. If you don't believe he was divine, but he's saying he is, you've got to reject him wholesale, right? So there's an there's a, um, uh, inconsistency there. There's a really good book that I read. I actually have a copy in my car. Uh, the, the author's name is Sammy Tanago. And he does classes on how to show Muslims who Jesus is. And it's, it's called Glad News, God Loves You, My Muslim Friend. Great book. It actually he takes them from their culture and from their scripture and he leads them to the Messiah. Pretty, pretty amazing thing that he does. Judaism. Well, let's break it up. And there's so many different forms. The Messianic Jews, fierce loyal to Jesus as the Son of God, as their Messiah. Wear the shirts that say, Jesus made me kosher. I love it, man. They're just so fierce when it comes to their loyalty to Jesus Christ. All other forms, most of them believe he was a revered prophet. But again, you run into the same problem if he claimed to be deity. And you don't believe it. Then you have to reject him. You can't revere him as a prophet if he's lying to you. So there's an inconsistency there. Jehovah Witnesses, revered prophet. Now, Jesus goes through stages here. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was a lesser God created by Almighty God. He's another God. And really, when you have more than one God, you have polytheism. So Jesus is a lesser God, came to the earth. He was just man, no divinity. And then later, he turned into the Archangel Michael. So the Jehovah Witness Jesus has an identity crisis. He doesn't know who he is. He keeps changing, changing shapes here. They reject the divinity based on um, an Arianistic heresy uh, in the first few centuries. Mormonism, they believe he's the son of God. They believe he's God. Right? They believe he's divine. Here's where the problem comes in. But you can be a god too if you die a faithful Mormon. You're a faithful Mormon, you die, you're elevated to the status of the one who created you, you get your own planet with your own people, and it's like, a, a, like an erector set. You get to start all over again. I don't, I don't know. 
So that's really blasphemy because Isaiah 43.10 and many of the other Isaiah scriptures say that God says there's no God before me nor can there be after me. I am the only God. So Jesus is equal, either equal with him or he's a false God. And you just, God just makes it very black and white for us. Catholicism, son of God, divine. But the sacrifice on the cross is not efficacious enough to assure salvation. Holy Mother Church and good works um, are, are a, a must in the role of salvation. Even then, if you do all the things you're supposed to do, you cannot have assurance of salvation. That's considered the sin of presumption. Study this, as you can tell. Arminianism, son of God, divine. However, Jesus, he just can't kind of really hold you there. You know, you, a lot of good works have to be done to maintain that salvation. Calvinism, Jesus only died for a small minority, the elect. The, the non-elect are damned to hell even prior to birth, and there's no free will. You can't choose. You have no choice. There's problems with that, too. So the question is, remember that show, like, uh, 20 years ago, To Tell the Truth? So then you have to say, will the real Jesus please stand up? You have all these different pictures of Jesus, you know, and I try to make light of it, but it's really a serious subject. Um, can all the above be true at the same time, especially if they're contradictory? Can 2 plus 2 equal 4, but at the same time equal 5, 10, and 5,000? You would say that's ridiculous. You know, the teacher would fail you. So why is it any different with eternal things? If three people go up to, you know, different flight schools to learn how to fly at 747, and the first school, the pilot takes you up, teaches you how to take off, to move the joystick, what the switches and the gauges are for. You're doing good. He teaches you how to maintain. What are the ailerons for, for the different flaps on the wings? He teaches you all that stuff, and he teaches you how to land. Really good way to fly, right? You'll probably do well. You go to the second flight school. This guy says, well, just kind of go up. Let me, let me take you up there and then kind of move the joystick in a figure eight, flip some buttons up and down. You'll be fine. You think you're going to last very long in the air? What about the third flight school? Let's get up there. You're flying. He goes, now what you do is to land, you close your eyes and you use the force. You're going to crash, right? You think that that's ridiculous, Joe. That's an absurd example. But why is it any different with spiritual things, which is far more important and have far more eternal consequences? What, what is this attitude that I'm going to make up my own way to God and he's going to like it? God's going to lump it because this is the way I want to get to him. God has prescribed the way in the scripture to get to him. He, he's prescribed a way to be free of your sin, to repent, and to come to him at the foot of the cross. This is the biblical Jesus, what the Bible says about Jesus. Fully God and fully man, Colossians 2.9. In him, Jesus, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How is he half? How is he fully God and fully man? I don't know, but... The Bible says he is, and I accept that. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7:14. The old Hebrew word in the Old Testament was Alma, for virgin. People today will say, well, it really wasn't a virgin, it was a handmaiden. Let me tell you something. <laughs> the old scriptures, let's go back far. Let's go back to the Septuagint, which was circa 3rd century B.C., before the, the Masoretic text and all the newer uh, Judaic translations. What happened was they took all of the Old Testament and translated it into Greek so that the Greeks could under, understand monotheism. And what they did was they took the word Alma in Isaiah 7:14 and they translated it to Parthenos in the Greek, which is very clear. It means virginity. It, it's actually a contraction between two words, virginity and unmarried. There you got it. He was born of a virgin. 
He lived a sinless life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us. And that was on the cross. He died a substitutionary death for us sinners on the cross. If you're taking notes, Hebrews 9.25-28. And I'm just giving you some scriptures. There's many scriptures that back these up. Uh, he rose again the third day and ascended into heaven 40 days later and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Read all of Acts chapter 2. His death was efficacious and complete, and nothing can be added to it. When Jesus was on the cross, he, he said the word in Greek, which was tetelestai. Now, a lot of you have heard it's an accounting term, which means the debt is paid in full. So the debt of sin that mankind owes to God, when he was on the cross, he said tetelestai. It's paid in full. Nothing can be added to that payment. It's done. Tetelestai was also a military term. Uh, when the commandos back then would go in and do a mission, and they completed that mission. And nothing needed to be added to that mission because it was completely complete. And they came back, they would say, Tetelestai. So there's another version of what that word means. There's no mistaking that what Jesus did was complete and nothing can be added to it. Uh, what else? Jesus died for all of mankind, John 3:16, and he desires all to be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, but will not force himself on anyone. He's a gentleman. He stands at the door and knocks. He desires, he asks, and it's up to us to make that decision. The Greek word is pas, P-A-S, which means every, every person. And when they translate, I know I'm really getting into some stuff here, but it's important. Acts 2.21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That word in the Greek is translated into the English, and it means whoever, whosoever. In the dictionary, it means whatever person, any person, no matter what person, every person. It's very clear. All can come to the cross, repent, and Jesus will forgive them of their sins. Uh, again, I, I use this example. Jesus uses it in John 3:14 through 17. He said, it's Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and all who looked upon that serpent were healed of their snake bites. At the time, snakes had come and were attacking the children of Israel and biting them, and they were dying from the poison. So Moses was commanded to take a serpent, lift it up on the pole, and all the children of Israel had to do was look on that, that thing that Moses made that God told them to and believe that that could cure, him, cure them. And all these people started being cured of the snake bites. But don't you know, some people refused to look at that snake, uh, that serpent on the pole, and they died. It's the same thing here. Jesus likens it to the cross. All you have to do is look to the cross and believe what Jesus did for your sins, that he died for your sins. You will repent of your sins. You will be healed of your sins. And that's it. It's a very simple thing to do. And it's funny because things are so easy with salvation that people have a problem with it. The, the big thinkers, wait a minute. All I have to do to get to heaven now, to get to heaven for eternity, is to believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, repent of my sins, and, you know, that's it? Yeah, that's it. Now nah, that's too easy. i got to do something else. You want some money? You know, can I do this? Can I do that? But you know what it's for? It's for people who could be wheelchair-bound, have no family, have no money. They can't do good deeds, they can't pay for anything, and they can't even get up and help you and serve. But you know what? They can still be saved. That's why Jesus did it, so that everybody could benefit from the message of salvation. Okay, Galatians 1, 8 and 9, it says that it's important what you believe. Don't be impressed by people. You know, um, I may become a really good speaker and wear nicer clothes, and I don't know, get a building. But it's not about me. It's not about Lloyd Pulley. It's not about John MacArthur. It's not about the Pope or Billy Graham. 
it's, you know, it's good to listen to these people if they have something good to say, but remember, they'll still, they can still make mistakes. Actually, um, we're going to go into a portion of Scripture where I'm going to show that a few chapters back, I actually made a mistake in one of the chronologies that I'm going to fix. So, you know, we make mistakes. We're, we're human. Here it is, right here. This is all you need. This book, and um, you're good to go. So, uh, it's, it's, it's not about people. It's about reading your Bible. We have um, a section in our police department. It's called the Records Bureau. And they have like open cubicles. Not even really cubicles. There's no doors. They're just kind of like small partitions. And the people who work there, who work in records, put up these articles every once in a while, maybe about the Da Vinci Code or something. Well, if you noticed, uh, last, was it, I don't know, Wednesday was the 6th, 6606. So they had the thing on the Antichrist, on the History Channel, all this kind of stuff. People were asking all kinds of questions. So one of the people had an article about 666, what it does it all mean? And everybody was weighing in on it. Now, it was closed, and I saw the article, so I took a little post-it note, and I said, it doesn't mean anything, read your Bible, Joe D. And I put it on there. <laughs> Pick up your Bible, read the Bible. Stop worrying about what everybody else thinks and what everybody's going to weigh in on. You can't, you know, having a relationship with God is not through a commentary. You know, it's through prayer, it's the Word of God, it's, you know... It's between you and him. So the most important training for the disciples to get was who exactly is Jesus. One of the things that made Jesus such a great trainer and teacher is that he put forth questions, like I said before, and problems to be solved. So let's evaluate Jesus' method through the book again, through years of research. And of course, you know, Jesus predates the book. And then we'll wrap it up. Page 11 and 12. says this, characteristics of a good field training officer, excellent communication skills, high degree of patience. Well, dealing with those 12 disciples, he had to have a good <laughs> degree of patience. And look, I'm not saying I would have done a better job. <laughs> I've got hindsight here. If I was with them, I'd be fumbling over my words and not understanding his teachings too. But he had a high degree of patience, tact, the ability to balance performance expectations with the need to deal frankly and fairly with trainees. He was very frank and fair. Honesty, son of God. Integrity, same. Accountability to the Father. Sensitivity, the Bible said he had compassion. Cooperative spirit, understanding. Uh, who, who knows understanding except the mind of God? A sense of humor. I believe that Jesus had a sense of humor. Why would God make us with a sense of humor? I mean, he doesn't want us to be robots. There's that interaction. Sense of humor a lot of times helps to break the ice, as long as it's clean humor. Sense of adventure. Jesus came, left heaven, came to earth to be abused. Sense of adventure. Uh, maintain level of professionalism that results in respect from all. Monetarily rewarded. Okay, Jesus didn't get comp time or vacation time, but his reward was the benefit of seeing the fruit of what he birthed by his death the fruit of the disciples of the early church in the face of intense persecution. Okay. And then last thing is the five-step approach. It says, tell them how to do a task, show them how to do it, and let them help in the process. Let them do it themselves with your help. Let them do it on your own. Provide feedback, positive and negative, on how they did. I think Jesus achieved all of that. So did Jesus achieve the goal of disseminating the Father's will through the disciples after his departure? When we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see absolutely. 
the growth of the true church against all odds. Now, we have churches here that grow, and Christianity in the United States, spirituality, everybody has some type of spirituality, but let's say, um, you know, there was persecution, and people would take your kids away from you because you're not a fit parent if you believe in some guy rising from the dead. You know, start thinking about it in that way, and then where would the church be? But this church grew amazing in, in the first few centuries in, a, in the face of intense persecution. Heresy, a lot of heresies had to be rooted out, and ingrained tradition. Tradition was killing, was, was a killer of, of God's word. Jesus said, with your traditions, you nullify the word of God. It's, you're so brainwashed into believing what your mother believed and your grandmother and your great-grandmother, and you know, it goes on and on and on. Well, I've always been doing it this way. But that doesn't mean it's right, you know, the ingrained tradition. Jesus is, and Jesus laid the foundation. And those who truly desired salvation continued on doing his will. What about you? What about you today? Maybe you're a businessman or a businesswoman or a professional. And you know what? You say, well, between that manual and the Bible, Joe, I could take some of that, that stuff back to my job and, you know, help to whip up my employees into shape. But uh, I'm going to discard the spiritual side. That's a tragedy. Because Jesus used the familiar to bring in the spiritual truths. The familiar was, was the net, you know. It was, it was part of the net to, to hook people in and bring them into the kingdom of heaven. The familiar was just used to help make that leap between that and the spiritual side. Maybe this is the first time you've heard the biblical truth of who the real Jesus is. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you've heard about Jesus and, you know, the Bible was on the coffee table and all that kind of stuff. But you never really knew the depth of what Jesus did. Maybe some of these scriptures you've never heard before about the full effect about Jesus' death on the cross. And now you have no excuse but to follow him. Jesus said, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? The choice is yours. You have to make that decision. Let's pray. You're going to see absolutely the growth of the true church against all odds. Now, we have churches here that grow. And